You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Welcome once again to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad that you are with us this morning. So, you know, I wasn't here um, last week, and you notice that Mike's not here. We were in Ukraine and in Hungary, and uh, the majority of our trip, we were in Ukraine. And what we were doing was we were speaking at a leadership conference in Kiev. So this is the fourth year that uh, I've had the opportunity to go to Kiev and speak at this leadership conference. It's a it's kind of a pastors and leaders conference for um, Calvary chapels in Ukraine. And so we had about 60 people in attendance at this conference, and it was just a, it was a great time together. We spent two days together uh, just outside of Kiev and just kind of studying leadership principles from the word, and uh, it was a very good time. So then we, uh, we went to Hungary. We've been able to visit some of our missionaries that we support as a church. And Mike is still there at this moment, and he'll be back uh, by next Sunday. But uh, I appreciate your prayers for our travels and uh, just a very fruitful trip and glad to be back though. Uh, This morning we're going to be beginning a new series in the book of James. So if you'd please open with me in your Bibles to the New Testament book of James. We're going to begin there in chapter 1. We'll begin by reading our text and then we'll get into our study. So let's begin this morning by reading our text which is uh, from James chapter 1. We'll start in verse 2 and go to verse 18. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind." For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death." Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he has brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we're uh, just eager to come today and study, Lord. We, as we work our way through this text, Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us. We ask that you'd show us new things in your word, but also, more importantly than new things, Lord, would you help us to apply the things that we hear here? Lord, we desire to be doers of your word, not just hearers only. So, Lord, may we see glorious things about you in your word, and may we put them into practice in our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let me ask you this. Have you ever been in a kind of a survival scenario, right? Like maybe you were backpacking uh, and you got lost or maybe you got stranded somewhere and you had to survive until help came. Well, here in James chapter one, what James gives us is a survival guide, but not a survival guide on how to survive physically. What James gives us is a survival guide on how to survive spiritually in the wilderness of this world. See, the question is this, how can we get through this life with our faith intact. And what James does is he gives us some very practical and some very helpful instructions about how to do that. How to not just survive the testing of our faith, but to actually come out on the other side better and stronger for having gone through the testing of our faith, having gone through those tests. You know, in real life, all of us face these things. There are things which we encounter which put our faith to the test. If you are a person of faith, you are going to encounter things in your life that put your faith to the test, that challenge your faith. For example, there's the problem of evil, right? If, in other words, this is the problem. If there really is an all-powerful God who can do anything, and that God loves us, well, then why do bad things happen? Or, or to put it more personally, uh, why do bad things happen to me, right? Like, why does God let bad things happen to me? Why are there tragedies and catastrophes? Uh, it's the classic question, why do bad things happen to innocent people? Or if God loves me, then why does he let bad things happen to me? See, it's situations like that which put our faith to the test. When we encounter, for example, the problem of evil, it puts our faith to the test. Another thing that puts our faith to the test is, is when we are tempted, right? We're tempted to do something that we know is wrong, and yet it, we have an opportunity, right, to take a shortcut to get something that we want. And so when you're faced with temptation, it puts your, your convictions and your faith to the test. Will you act according to your beliefs, or will you take the shortcut which gives you the short-term benefit. Will you compromise your convictions or will you walk by faith, even if the path of faith isn't as pleasurable in the moment? The title of today's study is Survival Guide. That's what we see here in the first 18 verses of the book of James. Here in this text, James begins his letter by showing us what we need to make it through real life with our faith intact. Again, we're beginning a new series this morning, a series in the epistle of James. And the, the title for this series is Faith in Motion, which also happens to be our theme for this, this calendar year as a church. And as a church, the reason that's our theme this year is because we desire to be these kinds of people. People who actually live out our faith. People whose faith isn't just talk, but is actual real action. Because here's what we believe. We believe that real faith manifests itself in actions. Real faith manifests itself in actions, and that's what the epistle of James is all about. It's all about this, that if the gospel is true and we really believe it, how will that affect the way that we live practically and day to day? If the gospel's true, and it is, and if we really believe it, how will that affect the way that we live practically? Check out what Martin Luther had to say about real living faith and how it manifests itself in actions. He said this, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. See, the, the way to become right with God is not by our actions. 
It's by Jesus's actions on our behalf. That's a very important distinction for us to make. In other words, we don't save ourselves. We don't make ourselves right with God by our actions. We're saved by what Jesus did for us on our behalf in his life and his death and his resurrection. So we're justified before God, uh, not by trusting in ourselves, but by trusting in Jesus and clinging to him and what he did for us in his life, death, and resurrection. In his life, he fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements on your behalf. In his death, he died on a cross, even though he was innocent, not for his own sins, but for your sins, to pay the penalty and to pay the price. And in his resurrection, he overcame death and he opened the way for you to have eternal life. See, there are a lot of people today who mistakenly believe that they can be right with God because they're a pretty good person or pretty decent person, right? Because they haven't done particularly bad things or because maybe they're better than other people they know. So they figure that because those things are true, well then they must be right with God on their own merits, you might say. Uh, And of course, those are all good things, right? They might say, hey, you know, I try to do what's right. I try to treat other people with uh, kindness and things like that. And of course, those are all good things. But the problem is those things alone cannot make you right with God. See, there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be very surprised when they stand before God. The Bible says that all of us will stand before God one day. And the point is that there will be a lot of people who are going to be very surprised when they stand before God because they thought that if they would just try hard enough to be a decent person, that that would be enough. And what they're going to find out is that that's not how it works. So it's really important that we acknowledge this before we we move on. When we talk about this idea of faith and works, which we're going to talk about a lot here in James, we want to understand that we're not saved by trusting in ourselves. We're saved by trusting in Jesus and what he did for us on our behalf in his life, death, and resurrection. But here's the thing that James tells us, which is also very important. Just because we're not saved or made right with God on the basis of our good works, that doesn't mean that our actions don't matter. It doesn't mean that good works don't matter. They absolutely do. In fact, our actions are the litmus test of whether we have real faith or not. Jesus talked about this himself, actually. He said this, you will know a tree by its fruit, right? So in the same way, if you are really trusting in the gospel, if you are really walking with God by faith, it will produce inevitably certain things in your life that other people will be able to see, just like the fruit on a tree. We have an apple tree in our front yard. It's actually in our neighbor's yard, but it hangs over our yard. And I I think about all the times when in the fall, this tree produces apples. Now, maybe you've been around an apple tree before, so you can relate to this. But how many times have you walked by an apple tree and you've heard it making this noise, kind of like a noise like this, like, ugh, right? Probably never, right? I've never heard our apple tree doing that. Like you walk by it and it's just going like, right? Like, why wasn't it doing that? Of course, because if the tree is healthy, it, it it doesn't have to strain to produce fruit. It just produces fruit naturally. A tree's never strained to produce fruit. They just do it naturally. And so if you want your apple tree to produce apples, 
what do you do? Well, you focus on inputs, right? You focus on watering that tree and keeping it healthy. And it works the same way with us. Jesus said this in John chapter 15. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, in other words, if you stay connected to me, then you will produce much fruit. But apart from me, like a branch that's cut off from the stalk, you will wither up and die. And so this is what James is talking about, that what it looks like to have real living faith, which manifests itself in action. See, our faith in God and our trust in the gospel shouldn't make us passive people. It shouldn't make us people who think that our actions don't matter. Rather, quite the opposite, it should move us and motivate us in what we do and in how we live. So the theme of the epistle of James is practical Christian living. It's a lot about our actions. It's about how we live practically. James is sometimes uh, compared to or related to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. It's kind of a New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. And the reason for that is because it gives kind of short, quippy, very practical teachings. The book begins with this uh, verse. In verse 1, it says this, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So the first thing we learn about the letter of James, the epistle of James, is that it was written by a man named James. Now that sounds pretty straightforward, but the problem with this is that there are actually several people named James mentioned in the New Testament. So the question is, which James is the one who wrote this letter? Which James are we talking about here? Well, there's pretty reliable church tradition that tells us that the writer of the book of James, or the epistle of James, is a man named James the Just. James the Just. And this man, was it's interesting, he was actually the half-brother of Jesus. See, there are two places in the New Testament where Jesus's... Um, half-brothers and, and sisters are mentioned by name, particularly as half-brothers. We read about James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. It mentions that he has sisters as well. And so these are best understood as the half-siblings of Jesus because while they had the same mother, that's Mary, uh, they didn't share the same father. These, these half-brothers and sisters uh, of Jesus, they had Joseph as their biological father, whereas Jesus was born of a, vir born of a virgin in that mir uh, miraculous birth. So the James who wrote this book is almost certainly James the Just. That's how he was known in the early church, and he was the half-brother of Jesus. That means that they grew up in the same house, right? That James being the half-brother of Jesus, he wasn't, you know, uh, he was born of a different father, of course, but they grew up together in the same house. They, they would have shared a bunk bed maybe, right? Like they ate dinner together every night. And the more you think about it, the more you realize just how incredible it is that James, if he is the half-brother of Jesus, this is somebody who knew Jesus up close and personal. He lived in close quarters with him. He knew Jesus when Jesus was a teenager. And this James, in spite of growing up with Jesus, in spite of knowing Jesus when he was a teenager, he came to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And not only that, he came to worship him, not just as the Messiah, but as God himself. Now, I don't know how many of you have brothers, 
But I wonder if your brother came up to you one day and he said, hey, everybody, I'm God come to earth to save you. How many of you would have a hard time believing that, right? Like you might remember back to all the times when your brother didn't act very God-like, right? When you were growing up. And when people began saying that Jesus had lived a sinless life, well, if anyone could have disproven that claim, I'm guessing it was his siblings who grew up in the same household with him. And yet Jesus' half-brothers, these became some of his most devout followers. Not only did they worship him, uh, but they followed him with their lives. Now, it wasn't always that way. We actually read several times in the Gospels that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his brothers didn't believe in him. It says that even straight up just in John 7, verse 5, that even his brothers did not believe in him. In fact, they even questioned Jesus' sanity several times. Uh, For example, none of Jesus' half-siblings were counted among his disciples. James, the disciple of Jesus, is not the same person as the James who wrote the epistle of James. And when Jesus was crucified, his mother Mary, we know that she was present there at the foot of the cross, but it seems that none of his brothers were present because Jesus spoke to his disciple John there from the cross as he hung there uh, as life was leaving him. And he asked John to take care of Mary as if uh, she was his own mother. So it seems that the half-siblings of Jesus did have a hard time at first believing that he was the Messiah, even though they couldn't necessarily refute the claims that he had never sinned. But what happened, right, that changed the way they felt about him was the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, uh, obviously he would have appeared to his family. And that seems to have been a turning point at which his half-siblings began to believe in him and even worship him. Along with James, we know that another half-brother of Jesus, Jude, uh, wrote the epistle of Jude, which is also here in our New Testament. This James also became... The, uh, one, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. We see that especially in the book of Acts chapter 15, that, that by Acts chapter 15, this James had taken over leadership of the church there in Jerusalem, that kind of mothership, that head church. As many of the apostles moved out into different areas, James took over leadership of the Jerusalem church. So it's very possible that this letter of James also was the first book that was ever written in the New Testament. So as we look at James today, that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. It's very possible that the epistle of James was the first New Testament letter that was ever written. See, many scholars believe that the first letter written by the apostle Paul was somewhere around 50 to 51 AD. But it's very likely that James was written before that by at least five years. So like, AD 46 to maybe AD 49. There's a very good chance, again, that uh, this was the first letter written in the New Testament and that it was written during a time when the church was still predominantly Jewish in its character. There are actually several things in this book that lead us to see that. For example, you'll notice there in verse one, it said that 
um, the letter was addressed to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, the 12 tribes being a clear connection to the people of Israel, the Jewish people. But another indication that this letter was written very early on in the Christian movement when Christian, uh, Christianity was still predominantly Jewish in character is some of the language that's kind of peppered throughout this letter. For example, in James chapter 2, verse 2, it describes a Christian greeting, and it uses this word, assembly. It says this, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. Now that word assembly is the same word that the Jewish people used for the word synagogue. They would use that word to describe their synagogue gathering. So it seems that this letter was written very early at a time when the Christian community was still predominantly Jewish. Because remember, for the early Christians who there in Jerusalem, as the first church came into being in Jerusalem, Christianity wasn't a different religion. As they became Christians, they weren't changing their religion in their mind. Rather, they had grown up in Judaism, and this was just the fulfillment of all of the hope and all of the things that they had been foretold in the scriptures as they study the Jewish scriptures. And so James introduces himself. He says he is a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I were James, I might have uh, introduced myself differently, right? I might have introduced myself as like, hey, I'm James, the half-brother of Jesus, right? Like, I know him better than you, right? Or I might have said, hey, I'm James, the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. You know, OG, right? Like the original church, like we're the real deal. But instead, James says, no, I'm James and I am a servant. That's how he describes himself. That's what he wants to be his identity. See, for the Greek people at this time, uh, especially, the word servant was a very negative word. They didn't think of this as a good thing to call somebody a servant. See, they considered servitude something degrading that should be avoided at all costs. To be a servant was considered to be a shameful thing. But James here, we see that he isn't ashamed to call himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is he not ashamed of that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because James understood the gospel. He understood that the message of the gospel is that God came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ in order to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for us. So James is not ashamed to identify himself as a servant. But notice this, when James uses this phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that that word Lord and attaching it to Jesus Christ, that is very pregnant with meaning, both politically and theologically. So politically and theologically, that is a pregnant term to say the Lord Jesus Christ. See, at this time, the Roman emperors would use this title. They would use the title kurios, which means, which we translate into Lord, right? So they would use the title, they would give themselves the title kurios or Lord. For them, what that meant is that they were not only the supreme ruler, but that they were in fact gods themselves. And so when Jesus came along and he said that he was in fact the Lord or the kurios, it was a direct challenge to the Roman Empire and to that political system and to that religious system. What Jesus was saying is, the Caesar is not the supreme ruler. 
I am the supreme ruler. He was saying, Caesar isn't a God, I am God. And so for James to make this claim that Jesus is Lord is a very big deal because what it means is that he believes that Jesus is the supreme authority over the universe and beyond that, he believes that Jesus is in fact God. Church tradition tells us that this James was eventually murdered by the people in Jerusalem. When the persecution came against Christians in waves there in Jerusalem, that James was rounded up by a mob and he was taken up to the highest point of the temple and he was thrown onto the ground. But actually that the fall from the temple did not kill him. James was killed. He fell on the ground. He was just injured. And then people came and they beat him to death. Now, why am I telling you that? I'll I'll tell you. Uh, The tradition also says that he was, as he was being beaten, he prayed for those who were attacking him. I, I tell you that to tell you this. James was a man who truly put his money where his mouth was. In other words, the message of his book was not missed on himself. He not only believed Jesus, but he was willing to give his life for Jesus. And the theme of this letter wasn't missed on him. He had real living faith that wasn't just theoretical. It worked itself out in real life in practical ways. And so here in this survival guide, what do we have? Well, from verses uh, 2 through 18, James points out to us two ways in which our faith is often put to the test. So two ways that our faith is often put to the test. The first way is when we encounter hardship and difficult circumstances. So that's the first focus there in verses 1 through 11. That's the first way that our faith is often put to the test, when we face hardship and difficult circumstances. The second way, though, is when we face temptation. And he talks about that in verses 12 down to verse 18, temptation. But James tells us something interesting in verse 2 down to verse 4. Here's what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what James is telling us is that when your faith is put to the test, it can either make you better or it can make you bitter. It can either make you better or it can make you bitter. In other words, how we respond to the tests that we face absolutely matters. How you respond matters. That's why James says this phrase. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect. What that means is that that's an action that is on us, right? That's an action on our part that we have to do when our faith is put to the test. In other words, just because you face a test or a trial or some kind of difficult circumstance or some kind of temptation, that doesn't automatically mean that it will make you stronger or better. There's no guarantee that just because you face something that you will become stronger or better. It's absolutely possible for our faith to be put to the test and for the testing of our faith to actually leave us bitter and not better. We can actually see that several times throughout the Bible. For example, all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, the original story, right? Cain and Abel. God accepted Cain, or Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain's sacrifice. Now, Cain 
could have taken this as an opportunity to learn. He could have taken it as a chance to grow in humility and understand and learn from God what it was that was missing or wrong in his sacrifice. He could have taken this as an opportunity to grow. But instead, Cain became bitter against God and he became resentful against his brother. And he let that bitterness and resentment stew inside of him until he got to the point of acting out and killing his brother. So that's an example of somebody who faced a trial or a test and he didn't get better, he got bitter. Another example is found in the story of Saul and David, right? King Saul was king of Israel, but when God began to raise up David to be the next king of Israel, Saul became bitter against God and resentful towards David, and he began to curse God and turn his back on God, and he even got to the point where he was trying to murder David. We see it also in the book of Job, an opportunity there where we see someone becoming bitter in the midst of a trial rather than better. See, Job, in the the story of Job, right, he loses everything in just a matter of days. He loses his business, he loses his money, he loses his health, and he loses his family, except for his wife. And that turns out to be not such a huge blessing in itself, right? She wasn't exactly an encouraging wife. Whereas Job determined in his heart that he would trust the Lord in the midst of his difficulty, even though he struggled with some very real questions about why God would allow these things to happen to him, Job's wife didn't react the same way. She instead became bitter against God. And what Job's wife says to him there in in Job chapter 2, she says, look, why do you keep trusting God? Why do you insist on this? You should just curse God and kill yourself. Thanks, honey, right? Like, uh, great. So, but perhaps the most significant example of resentment and bitterness in the New Testament is the crowd that demanded Jesus' death when he was sent to be crucified. You might remember that less than a week before that time when that crowd chanted and said, crucify him, those, many of those same people were the ones who were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, laying down palm branches and welcoming him and declaring, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem as king. See, but what happened is Jesus made it clear that he had not come to do things exactly the way they expected. See, he made it clear that he had not come to set them free from the Romans, that he had come to bring a salvation that was different than the salvation that they expected. It wasn't a political uh, salvation. Rather, it was a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom that isn't of this world. And when the people realized that, they became resentful against him and they turned against him. See, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 tells us this. It tells us that we need to be careful that we do not allow a root of bitterness to take root in our hearts and grow up. And it says that it will defile many. And so the question is, how do we do that? How do we make sure that when our faith is put to the test, which it will inevitably be, how do we make sure that when our faith is put to the test, we will come through it better and stronger and not bitter and resentful? Well, here in this section, James shows us four things that we need to survive the testing of our faith and come out of them better and stronger. So we're going to work our way through these these four things that he shows us. The first thing he shows us is we need the right perspective. So we need the right perspective. 
James uses two important phrases right there in verses two and verse three. The first phrase he uses, count it all joy. The word idea behind counting it means estimating it. Estimate it all joy when you face various trials. The second thing he says in verse three, he says, for you know that, and then he goes on to say something else. But those two phrases, count it all joy and know that. So count it and know. The reason those phrases are important is because here's what they mean. James isn't telling us how we should feel when bad things happen to us. He's telling us how we should think. So he's not telling us how to feel. He's telling us how to think. See, the key to getting better instead of bitter in the midst of our trials is in how you think. James helps us by giving us the right perspective. He tells us down in verse 13 that God is not the author of evil and that God is not the source of temptation. Rather, he says in verse 17 that God is instead the father of lights and the source of every good and perfect gift. Now, that's an important perspective for us to have because what it means is that when hardships and trials and difficulties come into our lives, it isn't God punishing us or abandoning us. Rather, he allows those things to happen in our lives because he loves us and he wants us to grow. Because here's the truth. Unless you're stretched you can't get strong, right? This is true in the gym, and it's also true in the spiritual life as well. Unless you're stretched, you can't get strong. Think about it like this. When the engineers who, who uh, developed the Jeep Rubicon, right? These kind of just monster off-roading Jeeps, right? So when the, the engineers who developed the Jeep Rubicon, when they are in the development process, what do they do? Well, they take what they've created, and they go out, right? Everything that they made that looked good on paper, it made sense in theory. And what do they do? They take it and they put it to the test. They take it out on the gnarliest, hardest, most difficult terrain, and they ride it as hard as they can. Now, why do they do that? Are they trying to ruin it? Are they trying to wreck it? Are they trying to destroy it? Not at all. What they're doing is they're trying to test it to see if what they designed in theory actually works practically, to see if it works in the real world. And what those tests do is they help to reveal any weaknesses that might exist in the design so they can now work through those areas and make them stronger. And that's a lot like what the testing of our faith does as well. It's part of the reason why God allows trials in our lives. But here's the thing, right? You won't get better if you squirm out of the process. You won't get better if you squirm out of the process. Notice again, I just want to point this out. James says this in verse four, let steadfastness have its full effect. That idea of letting steadfastness have its effect is an important phrase. In other words, if you squirm out of the process, then it won't have its full effect. See, there are a lot of us, right, who when things get hard, our MO is just to bail. Like when things get hard, when things get scary, we squirm out of the process. When things get uncomfortable or hard or scary, we just leave, right? We'll leave relationships, we'll leave churches, we'll leave jobs, whenever something gets difficult. And because... Uh, you know, you're always running away whenever anything gets hard, you'll never grow. 
If you're always running away when things get hard, you'll never grow. You'll never allow that trial to have its full effect in your life. Now, in order to survive the testing of your faith and come out of it better rather than bitter, we need the right perspective. You need to understand that God is for you, not against you. You need to understand that God is not the author of evil, nor the source of temptation. But if you cling to him in the midst of, you, of the tests of your faith, he will use those difficulties and even those temptations to build you up and make you into something great. See, in order for us to respond well when our faith is put to the test, it's important how we think. It's important how we think, and it's important that we have the right perspective. If we have that, then we'll be able to respond in faith. See, faith is saying, Lord, I know this is, this is difficult. Lord, this is bad. This is hard. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but... I believe that you're still in control and I believe that you have a purpose even with this. And I'm gonna trust you in the midst of this. In fact, I am going to count it all joy because I believe that you are gonna bring something good and something wonderful out of this as a result. The next thing that we need to survive the testing of our faith is wisdom. We need wisdom. James says in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So when you're in the midst of a trial, when your faith is put to the test, you don't only need knowledge, right? That's really what the first one is about, the first point. You need something more than knowledge. You need wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to put the knowledge that you have into use. It's the ability to apply the knowledge that you have and put it into use. How do we get the wisdom that we need in times of trial? Well, James tells us there in verse five, he says we can ask God for it, knowing that he gives generously and that he doesn't despise our request. And how does God impart wisdom to us? Well, one of the primary places that God speaks to us and imparts his wisdom to us is through his word. If you want to hear from God, then read your Bible. Start with that. But that's not the only way God speaks to us, right? We know that God speaks to us and gives us wisdom through his Holy Spirit, right? The Bible tells us that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that what happens is that he gives you his Holy Spirit as a seal. The Spirit of God comes into your life, not only to transform you from the inside, but to give you wisdom, to give you guidance as you live this life and walk with God. And finally, another way that God speaks to us and imparts wisdom to us is through the community of faith, through the church, which the Bible calls the body of Christ. And what it tells us there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it talks about gifts of the Holy Spirit, these gifts of grace that God gives to believers for the building up of the church and for the work of God in the world, it tells us that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the utterance of of wisdom, right? Speaking out wisdom to each other. And so what that means is that we need the community of faith in order to hear and receive the wisdom of God. James tells us in verse six that when we ask God for wisdom, we should ask in faith, which means not doubting God's desire and not doubting God's ability. The next thing that James tells us we need in order to survive the testing of our faith and come out of it better and stronger rather than bitter and resentful, we need humility. James says in verse 9 and 10, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, but let the rich in his humiliation. 
because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. Humility just means thinking of yourself less. Humility means having a correct and accurate and a proper view of who you are, particularly in reference to God. In other words, understanding who you really are begins with understanding who God is. That's why James says there in verses 9 and 10, right? He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich exalt in his humiliation. What that means is that whether you're rich or poor in this life, you have to live in light of eternity. You have to remember that this life is not all there is. You have to remember that there is a God in heaven to whom we're all going to answer one day. And here's what James tells us later on in this book. He reminds us of this principle, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, we want to have the same heart and attitude that King David had when he wrote Psalm 139, where he said this. He said, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, that's the heart that says, Lord, show me if there's something in my thinking or in my actions that is wrong. And Lord, I give you absolute permission to correct me, to change my course, to to change my thinking. That's the opposite of stubbornness and pride. And in order for us to survive the testing of our faith, we need humility. So I came across this great quote from Charles Spurgeon on the topic of trials. Here's what he said. He said, I have looked back to times of trial with, great kind, with a great kind of longing, not to have the trials return, but to feel the strength of God as I felt it then to feel the power of faith as I felt it then, to hang upon God's powerful arm as I hung upon it then, and to see God at work as I saw him then. See, we don't seek out trials and tests as if we're some kind of masochist, right, who's always looking, you know, beat me one more time, right, type of thing. No, but, but here's the thing. When we're in the midst of them, we can count it all joy. And, and I just think about what Spurgeon said. He said, look, I'm not looking for trials necessarily, but those have been the greatest times in my life in a way. Because those have been the times when I've really seen God work, where I've really clung to him and I felt his strength in my life. And so we recognize that God can do great and good things through trials. So we don't seek them, but we count them all joy because we know that he can do good things through them. The fourth thing that that James tells us that we need to survive the test of our faith and come out better on the other side is hope. We need hope. James says in verse 12, he said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What this verse reminds us of is that the trial you're facing, if you're facing a trial today, you need to know this. It will not last forever. And if you persevere, there's a reward on the other side. Notice that it doesn't say, blessed is the person who is never tempted. Rather, it says, blessed is the person who remains steadfast under trial. One of the keys to staying steadfast under trial is the unique hope that we have as Christians. Look at how James concludes this section down in verse 18. Speaking of God, James says this, 
Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what does that mean? Well, in Romans chapter eight, Paul talks about something similar. What Paul says there is he says that all of creation right now is groaning because what we're waiting for, what we're looking forward to is redemption. We're longing for it. We're hoping in it. We can't wait for it. And in a way, we groan as we wait for it, wanting it to come soon. And this idea here in James chapter 1, verse 18, it says that we are the first fruits of God's creatures. What that means is that we who are believers in Jesus today, we get to experience the first fruits of this redemption here and now. We get to experience the first fruits of what awaits all of creation when the old will pass away and all things will become new. See, in Jesus, we get to experience that new birth even now. We get to experience the first fruits of redemption as God does his work in us now of making us into something glorious as he works in us. And ultimately, we know that what we experience now in part, this redemption that we're beginning to experience right now, it will one day come to full fruition. And so it is in this hope of the future that is to come because of what Jesus has done for us that helps us to survive the trials we face without losing hope and with perseverance. When you have that kind of hope, you're able to see your momentary trials and tests as part of the process by which God is making you into something great to use for his glory. And so in conclusion, you know, here in this opening section of James's letter, James gives us a survival guide, a, a guide for facing the tests of our faith, which will inevitably come. Uh, and the question is this, how can we get through this life, not only surviving with our faith intact, but even come out of the testing of our faith better on the other side? We need four things at least, right? We need these things that James shows us. We need the right perspective. We need wisdom. We need humility and we need hope. And the good news is these aren't things that we just have to muster up in ourselves, that we have to find within ourselves or stir up within ourselves. These are things which God himself gives us. You can see that even here by reading in James chapter 1. These are all things which God himself gives us. You know why? Because here's why. God wants you to succeed in this. Do you know that? That as God allows these tests and trials in your life, he wants you to succeed. So he provides you with everything that you need. And so as we face these tests and trials of our faith, we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the one who was tempted in every way as we are, and yet he was without sin. Where we have often failed the tests of our faith, where we have often fallen into temptation, Jesus was victorious. And it is because of his victory that we can be sure that we will make it through. So rather than looking for strength within, within ourselves, rather than trusting in ourselves, we look to him for strength and we rely on the resources which he has given us in Christ. And so we do that so that we might not only survive the tests and the trials that we face in this life, but we might come out through them stronger for having gone through them, better and not bitter. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this message. Thank you, Lord, that you, Jesus, faced the ultimate test. Lord, you said on the cross, you said, 
Lord, why have you forsaken me? Lord, your, your faith was put to the test. Lord, you faced every temptation that we know, and yet you were without sin. And so, Lord, we don't look to ourselves, but we look to you. Lord, we, we put our trust not in ourselves, but we put our trust in you. Lord, we pray that you would give us this kind of real living faith that James talks about, faith that manifests itself in real actions. Lord, we pray that you would work in us and transform us from the inside out, Lord, that we might display these actions in our lives for your glory and for the good of others around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.